The reading today is taken from Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, reading from verses 27 to 36, and it can be found on page 1034 of the Church Bibles, 1034. Love for enemies. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who ill-treat you. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners, expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Come, Holy Spirit. What we know not teach us, what we have not grant us, and what we are not make us for your love's sake. Amen. Just before uh, I begin, just, just to say how really good it's to be here as your new Archbishop. Um, <laughs> uh, thank, thank God that's not the case for me and you, so that, that's, that's good. No, it's really good to be here as your Archdeacon. The emphasis being on the deacon, the one who serves, I, I hope. Uh, uh, and uh, just to say, one of the uh, joys is uh, to be here, having uh, over the last uh, number of months worked very closely with your leadership, PCC, uh, uh, the wardens with James and Judith and uh, George and Brian and others, uh, through this time of vacancy. Uh, part of my role is to work through many of those practicalities uh, of this process. But uh, it's been wonderful to be a part of the sort of whole uh, circle and wave of prayer that surrounded uh, this process. And myself, and Bishop Tim and so many others uh, are with you praying uh, through this process, uh, knowing that, uh, uh, as said earlier, we can trust in the goodness of God. Um, and uh, as we've said, uh, not quite the first time 
uh, we wait for that right person that God has for you. Um, so do continue those prayers as uh, encouraged uh, earlier uh, and surround this process as we look forward uh, to all the good things uh, that God is waiting to do here uh, in Christchurch. I know you're in great hands at the moment, um, but uh, as we go forward, we look forward. I know you really want a vicar as well as all those other great people you have uh, to take you forward. So uh, I'd encourage your prayers. Um, it does feel like the ship is sort of balancing one way, doesn't it, with, uh, uh, on this side. You know, if you're on an aircraft, you'd be paying extra for legroom at the frontier, and yet it's free, and you still decide to uh, decline it, but uh, no doubt you're where you are for, for good reasons. But it's really good, amongst all these other things, to come and be with you to, uh, to have the opportunity to preach as you share, particularly through this uh, work as you're looking at St. Luke's Gospel, such a, a really great gospel in what it gives us alongside the others in uh, what it teaches us about the nature of God uh, and the nature of Jesus Christ. From those uh, earliest uh, parts of St. Luke's Gospel with uh, all it tells us about John the Baptist and then the, the birth stuff around, uh, around Jesus. Um, indeed, Christmas would not be Christmas for many people without what Luke gives us uh, at the beginning of, of his Gospel. And then the stories uh, of his early life, the beginning of his ministry, the baptism, the temptations, uh, and then the healing and the miracles in those next chapters three and four. And then chapter five uh, last week, I think, the calling of others, uh, which leads also this week uh, into this important part of teaching. So having called, uh, Jesus then equips. And I just uh, want to emphasize those four words that um, those whom God, well, more than four words, but those ideas that those whom God calls, he also equips. We can pass over that quite, quite quickly, but it's a vital part of one of the truths of our Christian life. God just doesn't send us out into situations uh, without the wherewithal to cope, without the strength to face the things before us. The truth is, whatever situation uh, we find ourselves in, God is there with us, Christ alongside us, giving us all that we need to take those steps. We are never alone. But let's move uh, particularly into the passage we've heard this morning, verses uh, 27 to 36. It's a passage where we particularly hear about Jesus equipping us uh, as the teacher, one of those great titles that he's given. And today's part comes immediately, for those of you who've read the chapter this week, after what in uh, other Gospels is called the Sermon of the Mount, on the Mount, but here we tend to refer as the Sermon on the Plain, because it begins, uh, not the plain I was talking about earlier, the flat bit, you know, because it begins about saying how Jesus has just come down from the mountain and he wants to teach his people. And the first words in the version of the Bible that I have, very similar to yours today, the first words, let's just keep an eye on, because he begins this block of teaching today in verse 27, saying, but I say to you, but I say to you. In my Bible uh, and many other versions, there are headings as you go through, and the heading for today's section is love for enemies. And perhaps we just need to pause and take a sort of normality check before we go on, because the norm, of course, is that we love our friends and hate our enemies. Read history. Look around us. That's how the world goes. Love your friends. Hate your enemies. It's the way, as I say, of the world. And as Christians, we can very easily, perhaps a little glibly, say, no, we must love our enemies. But let's not forget just how untypical that is. 
Let's not forget what's being asked of us in this. Let's not forget how it will sound to others, perhaps particularly those who are exploring Christianity, those who want to find out about Jesus, who he is and and what he's saying and what he's about. So Jesus equipping his newly called disciples begins by saying, but I say to you, in a sense he's saying, you know what the norm is. You know how it usually works in the world. Well, listen up, because if you're with me, it doesn't work that way. You're going to have to learn some different standards from the world's standards, different attitudes from those that are often shared around you. And to ram that point home, he says, but I say to you, listen, love your enemies. Well, I guess that uh, most of us are up for changing our feelings from negative to positive. We could try a bit harder to think well of those we use up so much of our emotional enemy being bitter about. But Jesus is interested in more than just our feelings. And Luke here gives us three words of Jesus following the word love, three words that are verbs. He's telling us that loving is about doing, not just what we feel, not just what we think, but our actions. And so he tells us, Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Do good. Bless. Pray. If you uh, take away nothing else, perhaps this morning, take away uh, those three actions. Do good, bless, and pray. And to try and spell out what that might mean, what that might look like, we then have the expression, the the well-known, well-loved expression perhaps about turning the other cheek, an expression that perhaps many of us knew uh, long before uh, we knew where it came from. In verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. A couple of years ago, um, I came across an interpretation of trying to understand this, which was a bit different from the emphasis uh, that I've grown up with or known for many years and has really helped me. It may be familiar to you, but most interpretations I've heard suggest that Jesus' teaching is, in effect, turning the other cheek means don't retaliate, that we don't up the ante, that we offer the other cheek in a way in a refusal to retaliate and to fight violence with violence. Turning the other cheek is about having the stature, the strength to break that cycle of violence, to break the tit for tat, to stop escalating animosity and hatred. Now that's good and that's true and it's powerful and important in many ways. But for me that the danger with this sort of interpretation is you sort of end up as what I call Christian doormats that we we sort of allow other people just to walk over us. Turn the other cheek means it doesn't matter what happens. As I say, people end up just walking over us. And the the different interpretation I, I came across is this. Someone pointed out that under Roman law, the usual rebuke for a social inferior was to deliver a backhanded slap across the cheek. By turning the other cheek, the oppressed person was daring the abuser to slap again with the forehand. And the forehand slap in that tradition was reserved for those of an equal social status, face to face. 
So Jesus' strategy of turning the other cheek changes, this writer says, three things. Firstly, yes, it interrupts that cycle of violence. But secondly, it holds up a mirror to the wrong action of the perpetrator, jolting him or her into self-awareness. And perhaps most importantly, it restores the social dignity of the victim. Turning the other cheek offers no re retaliation. It offers only truth. It holds up a mirror to the wrongdoing. And in doing so, we deprive the violent person of the undisputed control and power that they seek to claim. Back in the early 1990s, I remember being fascinated and buying and reading the accounts of the hostages, Terry Waite, John McCarthy, and Brian Keenan. They told of the brutal years of captivity at the hands of the fundamentalist Shiite militiamen in Beirut. And having prayed through their years of absence in the late 1980s, many of you will remember those years, it was heart-moving to understand something of the, of the faith, the fortitude, and the resilience uh, that had kept these men going. And for me, one of the most memorable parts of their records is in the passage from Brian Keenan's book. It's called uh, An Evil Cradling. And in this passage, he describes a moment of transformation in his whole experience. He had been uh, suffering regular humiliations from his guards. And there was one guard who, in particular, was taking pleasure daily beating him with the butt of his rifle in sort of some sadistic, cruel, pointless way. But then one day, during one of these beatings, Keenan describes about how he began to laugh. Keenan himself. He felt, he said, an enormous sense in, that mo sense in that moment of relief and a kind of peace. And what he says is he realized in that moment that he had nothing, that everything had been taken from him. No one in the world knew where he was. He was totally alone. And that guard had been doing everything he could, every effort just to abuse him, to mistreat him. But now there was nothing more that that guard could do to him. And so for Keenan, in that moment, there came a, a kind of catharsis. And as he laughed, the guard stopped. Keenan had taken away the guard's power and undisputed control. And it was the last beating that he received. When we turn the other cheek, we don't lie down, we stand up. We stand up for the values of Jesus. We stand up for the dignity of every human being. That whatever our situation, whatever we don't have, we do have the love of God in Jesus Christ and are loved as a child of God. And nothing, nothing can take that from us. And that's just the first half of verse 29. The second half goes on to say this, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. I wonder if your Sunday evenings like mine are sitting back with Les Miserables, or perhaps you take a catch up sometime later. 
I love the musical, it's fantastic, but the screen version does a better job, I think, of reminding us of what is of most value at the heart of Victor Hugo's novel. You see, there's really one moment, there's one action, one Christ-like opportunity in the book that is at the heart of the whole story, that transforms everything else that happens. If um, somehow you've managed to avoid Les Miserables in your life so far, let me very briefly just remind you of the story. The story begins in early 19th century France when a peasant, Jean Valjean, has just been released from 19 years of imprisonment. He was originally put in for prison for five years for stealing bread, which he was stealing to give to his starving sister and her family. And then the next 14 years, he keeps going back into prison for all his attempts to escape. And as he's released uh, in the book, in the story, Valjean struggles to find work and he's turned away from every innkeeper or any place because he carries with him by law a yellow passport that marks him out as a former convict. So he sleeps on the streets and he sleeps in anger and he sleeps with understandable bitterness. But then one night, a benevolent bishop Okay, stick with that. That's a good sentence, isn't it? Uh, we don't get many stories with that in. So uh, one night, a benevolent bishop shares his meal and his house and his, all that he has with him. He doesn't put him in the back room. He puts him in one of his good rooms, having shared the best of his food. But having experienced nothing but cruelty from others, Valjean gets up early and he runs off with the bishop's silver cutlery. When the police capture Valjean, his future incarceration looks bleak. And the police bring him to the bishop just to uh, make sure that justice is done. But this bishop has read Luke's gospel. This bishop has read Luke chapter 6, verse 29, the second part. This bishop knows what love needs to look like in action. So rather than hating his enemy, the bishop delights in Valjean's return. A delight not because he's going to get back his silver cutlery, but because he tells Valjean that he's really pleased he's come back because he forgot to take his two best silver candlesticks as well. And nothing is quite the same again for Valjean and his story. One act of love and all is transformed. His life is never the same again. In that verse 29 and in the following few verses, the word you appears quite often, and uh, from the original, the word you is second person singular, not plural. What Jesus is saying here is not just some general attitude of, of, of sort of loving and being nice to people in that sense. He's talking to you and to me specifically, second person singular. This is what love looks like in action. This is what it means to follow me. We then have a, a block of verses just following this, 30, 31, 32, where Luke tells us how Jesus reminds us of how doing to good to others as they do it to us is important, but he says it's the way of the world. In itself, yes, these are, are still the right actions to do. Do good to those who are good to you, lend to those who are lent to you. Yup, that's all good and right and true, but it's not enough. 
Yes, we'll be nice if someone's nice to us. But that's how the world is. It doesn't change anything. We often refer to doing to others as they would do to us as the golden rule, but it's actually not a rule that's unique to Christianity. It's there in other religions, and it's there for many who hold no religion. So what is it that Jesus is saying that's different, that's significantly changing that saying in this passage today? Well, I think part of the clue is actually over in verse 38, just beyond today's passage. In verse 38, Jesus says this, Give, and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. You see, in the Old Testament, you'll remember that the prophets were often calling out those who cheated others, especially those who cheated the poor. And the typical kinds of ways we hear they cheated them was by fixing the weighing scales and shortchanging them in what was even due to them. And here Jesus is saying that our giving should be a good measure, as much as can be fitted in and more. It overflows in generosity. That's what we want to do. That's what we want to receive. Do to others as you would have them do to you. Not just the the mean, what's due, but far more, far more generous, overflowing. And so in Jesus' use of this word, he's setting a new standard, a God standard, due to others in a way that changes the norm. And how does it change it? In verse 35, he repeats that opening verse. Love your enemies, do good. And then he goes on to tell us, that your reward will be great and you will be children of the Most High. Therefore, all this loving our enemies, all this generosity, all that's so untypical of us and all that is hard work is worth it for our reward will be great. Not quite. And let me explain. I was preparing for this and reading various commentaries people uh, had written and came across this from one of the uh, perhaps foremost commentaries on St. Luke's Gospel. The writer wrote this. The teaching on reward is um, marked by two features. The first is that reward is promised to those who act without any thought of it as a motive. And secondly, it's not an adjunct to the action, but is the activity in its perfected form since it derives from the character of the God who gives it. So what's all that mean? Well, let me suggest that you think about it in this way. I hope it wasn't uh, true of you when you grew up, but it might have been for some. I hope you were never described as a good-for-nothing person. I hope it still doesn't happen to you, that people just, if you like, sort of uh, wipe you off by just saying, They're really just good for nothing. But what I want to suggest today is that this is exactly what Jesus is encouraging us to be. Let me explain a bit further. Back in Victorian times, but not only then, children, and actually not only them, were governed by two things in life, the threat of hell and the promise of heaven. The biggest stick and carrot that there is Behave well, they were told, and you will go to heaven. Do things badly, and you'll go down to hell. As a motivational guide, it was hard to beat. 
And in many ways, I believe we're still tempted to live by versions of the same thing. But I say to you, Jesus says, but I say to you, verse 35, do good expecting nothing in return. Jesus wants us to be good for nothing. Jesus wants us to be good for nothing other than doing the good thing, the loving thing being the right thing to do. We are to be good for nothing, Christians. Why? The most important things begin by addressing the question why. Why? Because doing the good thing, doing the loving thing, is what God does. To be children of the Most High, this passage talks about, means that we're to be imitators of God. The child is like the parent. That's what Jesus wants, for us to resemble God, our Father, for people to see what love looks like in actions, in our life, and through such actions, people will see the love of God. And that's the reward. Nothing for us, but living out what we believe in, and so letting others see the love of God. Now verse 35 ends with some Greek wordplay, and it wouldn't be a Good morning in church, if you didn't get a bit of Greek wordplay. He says, For he is kind to the ungrateful and the wicked. In Greek, the word kind is krestos, and the word ungrateful is akaristos. Krestos, akaristos. That's the fun the Greeks were having and enjoying that you'd have missed otherwise. So I just wanted to make sure you didn't feel left out this morning. But being kind, I think that kindness is one of the most undervalued human behaviors, human values, uh, human virtues. There are many things that I want for my children, many characteristics that I pray that they will grow up with and exhibit in their lives. And perhaps being kind is right up there. A basic orientation to kindness changes relationships. It changes how we see people and how we treat people. Sadly, of course, humankind is too often human unkind. That's what we see in the world around us. But Luke has put this bit of Jesus' teaching about kindness right here as he draws this passage, this teaching to a close because he's reminding us of what it means to be a child of God. Kindness is not just some kind of schoolyard notice saying, play fairly. It's deep in the heart of God, the compassion of God, the love of God. For we're told, for he is kind. The life, the love of God, we, the children of God, are called to live out. It's noticeable in, in Matthew's version of this part of Jesus' teaching that he summed things up, you might remember, in Matthew 5.45 with the words, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What's sometimes referred to as the impossible command. Luke's version, perhaps, is a little more generous. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. And we could have a whole uh, 
sermon, a whole sermon series on the word mercy. But let me just say these couple of things. The mercy of God is very much akin to the kindness of God. And they're both kept very much side by side throughout the Bible and the understanding of who God is. Think of, of Micah 6 uh, verse 8, that famous verse. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. But other versions say, what does the Lord require of you? To do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Justice and mercy, justice and kindness come hand in hand because that's how it is with God. But notice how justice always comes and always must come first. Too often we're tempted to move too quickly to mercy. And mercy, though, isn't about just saying how our failures and other people's bad behaviors don't matter and it's all all right. That, that's to misunderstand what Christianity is saying. First comes God's justice, justice which upholds the truth, upholds the good, names wrong and sin and our shortfallings for what they are. And then comes the mercy, the kindness, the forgiveness of God, telling us that however far we stray, however much we get it wrong, the patient love of God draws us back and holds us again in that love. So be merciful just as your Father is merciful. And finally, let me, let me just end with this. I've just uh, started reading a little late, perhaps, but uh, Justin Welby's book that came out last year called Reimagining Britain. And with all that's going on in uh, Parliament and our country at the present, it seems a good time uh, to read this book as Justin Welby addresses sort of the whole Brexit uh, debate uh, and, uh, and how we as a church and as a country need to begin to reimagine uh, how to live our lives. And in it, uh, Archbishop Justin reminds us this. He says, values guide practices and practices build virtues. Virtues also reinforce practices and guide our understanding of values. And the subtitle of this book is Foundations of Hope. Jesus, the teacher, and so strongly and perhaps nowhere more here than in Luke 6, teaches us the kinds of values and virtues and good practices that make all the difference, that change the norm that make the difference because in this teaching, we are learning the ways of God. We are learning God's standards rather than the world's standards. And for us, we are to be like our Father. We are to be full, so full and generous and overflowing with the abundance of his life-giving mercy, of his life-giving love, bringing that hope which is the world's needs and which is the gift of God. So may it be. Amen.